Hey, and I know that a lot of you parents want to take your kids right to the back. If you want to do that now, you can. Um, I'm not going to tell you that we're going to wait for you, but we'll still be here when you get back. Um, so go ahead and take care of that and come on back and take a seat. Uh, we are um, in week three of our look at the book of First John. Um, excited to be there. And, and like, admittedly, like First John's been kind of pivotal for me um, to the point that it's, it's one of those, there's a couple passages in there that are quite quotable for me in my life and my following of Jesus. But the reality is, a majority of the book, like I tend to, I tend to relate to the ideas that John gives out. Uh, but this particular section that we're going to be in today, like there are lines in there that, that come up directly verbatim for me, at least in English, not in Greek, but in English. They come up in this particular section. It's, it's a big deal for me. And, and I don't want to put that on you and say it needs to be a big deal for you, but let me tell you why this one's, this one's kind of important for me. I think the longer that I follow Jesus, a couple things have happened. Um, one, as it's become simpler, like a life pursuing Jesus for me. Uh, I, I hit 44 on Friday. Doesn't mean that I'm older than a lot of you or all of you, but it means that I'm older than most of you, knowing the demographics of this church. And I felt pretty good getting up this morning. Nothing popped or broke or anything like that. I'm sure it's coming. Um, I've been through that already and, and hopefully no more. Uh, but my life pursuing Jesus, like it, it gets simpler. Like, the longer that I'm in this saddle with Christ, like, it, it does. Like, it, it's simplified over time. doesn't mean easier. Don't equate the two things. Like, simplicity and ease, they're, they're not the same. But it does get, it gets simpler. Like, the complexities that I used to apply to following Jesus, they've just kind of fallen away. They're not there anymore because I do. Like, I, I look at what Jesus said. I look at what Jesus did. And then, then I just kind of ask simple questions on it. And for me, that, that's a huge blessing that it becomes simpler but also it becomes simultaneously more mysterious. Like, God to me is far more mysterious now than he ever was. And, and here's the crazy thing about that. I'm okay with both of those existing at the same time. The simplicity of following Jesus and the mysterious nature of God. I'm okay with both. I think, again, the, the longer I pursue Jesus, the more I realize that what he's asked me to do um, it doesn't require a lot of steps. A lot of days it just requires okay and just submission. Um, but at the same time, I look at the ways of God, the decisions of God, uh, the very nature of God, and it's just profoundly more mysterious. And it makes me worship him all the more because there's so much about him that I can't explain, so much about him that I can't make sense of, but it's okay. Um, in this particular section of First John, like it represents both of those to me. There's amazing simplicity here. Um, that is just ever, man, ever applicable to me in my pursuit of Jesus. And yet there's some mysterious stuff here too. But it, being able to hold them both at the same time, like there's great peace there for me. And I, and I hope it's there for you. This morning I was kind of praying over the effects of this text, not the effects of some beautiful oratory skill, but like the effect of this text on us. And like my prayer for you and everybody who I didn't even know would be here, my prayer is just like that following Jesus would be simpler and simpler every single day. Um, and it would just be something that we could get up, and we might not understand the why behind what God's asked us to do, but we can understand our answer is yes. And so um, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 today. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with us. Um, we're going to read through and uh, just kind of talk about that and I'm going to pray slowly as some parents make their way back out. So, God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you so much for Jesus. Um, God, we thank, you for, we thank you for the way that you grow family, um, sometimes from the inside. 
Uh, God, thank you for the new life of these, these babies that we were able to just kind of publicly declare that, God, we, we desire for them to know you, like we agree with you, um, that you desire that all men come to know you and that none should perish, starting as early as, as these children. Uh, Father, we desire to see the same thing you do. We desire to see these children profess you as Lord, um, to believe in the name of Jesus as your son, to believe in his life, his death, his words, and his resurrection, um, and Father, to place their hope in just you. Uh, through him. God, we thank you for the families and the parents that were, that were here just to say that they agree with those same things and they, they want to see that for their children. Uh, Father, I pray you'd give them boldness. I pray you'd give them perseverance. I pray you'd give them patience um, and just like staying power with their kids uh, through the good, through the bad, through the crazy, through the fun, through the not fun. Uh, Father, we pray that they could be honest, but we pray, God, that each day that their answer would just be yes to you, that they will um, decidedly choose uh, to commit their children to you. Um, and Father, we, we desire that you bless them as a result. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So last week, um, we had a series of those if-then statements. Uh, like we talked about, the book of 1 John is uh, kind of like a grandfather to some church folks. Like, John is old. Like, he's aged. He's up there now. Uh, I'm looking around. He's probably older than anybody in the room this morning. And, and he's the last of those 12 capital D disciples at this point. Um, and he's speaking to the people of Ephesus and the surrounding church cities or cities that have churches upon them. And, and he's just kind of giving them truth. There's a lot of mistruth that's circulating around this time. And he doesn't take time to say, hey, here's the bad thing you've heard. Let me tell you the good thing. He just kind of goes right to the good things. Um, and last week, what we talked about is, is he just kind of uh, gave us these series of indicators of like, if this, then that. And, and the hope was that we saw that like, if this is true in your life, uh, then God is true. And so a couple of those things were where he started with the, the idea that God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. And that we have to live in that same light because it's his, it's him. And if we're in darkness, we can't possibly have fellowship with him. But there was also an understanding that we can live in light and sin still happen, like it's going to happen. As a matter of fact, it says, like, if you say that you have no sin, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. And then at the very end, he says, if you say that you have no sin, not only are you a liar, but you've made God a liar, because there's the expectation that God's put it out, like, you are going to sin. Not license, not liberty, but expectation that until we are glorified with Christ at his return, we are going to be entrenched in this warfare, spiritual warfare. My flesh is going to want one thing. My spirit is going to want something else. And God knew it all along, like full disclosure from God. He knew, even when he sent Jesus, when we were dead in our trespasses, that we would battle sin. And so that's the reason we have 1 John 1, 9, and just this idea of another if-then statement. If we confess, if we agree with God as to the nature of what we've done, that this is sin, whatever it may be, if we agree with him, confess that, he is faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that confession is not unto salvation, but that confession is about the fellowship that we have with God, that, that quantania, that relationship, that communion that we have with God. It is interrupted, affected, hindered by sin. So therefore we confess. So he takes care of it, heals us, cleanses us on that. And so there were a couple, you know, those big ideas last week, like, yes, sin will be there, but God is there more. Um, and this week he starts with a very interesting and a bit more um, specific idea. Last week, the passage was, was very general. This week, he starts a bit more specific. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 1, read through verse 6, and then come back through and talk. He says, My little children, 
Remember, that's one of the reasons I say it's like a granddad to the kids. Like, I, I don't know, I read this and I'm like, this, this old sage, you know, follower of Jesus, a lot of time in the saddle. He's given me great wisdom. But my little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. We'll come back to that. And not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So last week, there were some very general ideas about sin is going to come. Uh, We have to be open with that, be honest with the fact that there is going to be sin, but we have to be honest with the fact that we've sinned and take it to God too, agree with Him on what this is. But this week, He gives us a little more idea. So if we walked away feeling that sin was okay last week, that there was liberty and license to go out and live however we want, John clarifies that this week, and he starts off. He's like, my little children. Those that I love, that I'm speaking into right now, uh, I just want to tell you, like, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Like, I know, like, in in culture today, like, to talk about wrong and right, like, that's iffy, you know? Because it's, it's, you know, we we, we just don't want to be too forceful. We don't, I don't want to offend you. I don't, you know, I don't want to get on the wrong side of your plate and whatever it may be. But, man, Scripture, like, there's no way around it. Like, Scripture calls things good, bad, right, wrong, light, dark, sin, not sin. Like, he calls them that. I mean, Scripture does. Like, God, the Logos. Like, he calls them that. And here, like, there's a motivation from John being that that elder pastoral figure, that granddad figure. He's speaking to the people in Ephesus and those other surrounding six churches. And he's like, look, I want to be clear. Like, I'm writing to you this. I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. So that it doesn't happen. Now, we already talked about last week. He's like, look, if you say that you have not sinned, you are a liar. So there's the expectation that it's there, but there's a new expectation that John's placing here in his circular letter. Like, even though there's an acknowledgement that sin is going to happen, let me be clear. We shouldn't want it to. We shouldn't want it. Like, there should be a desire in me that wants to avoid this at all costs, to do what is ever, whatever is necessary to keep it from my home, to keep it from my life, to keep it out of the camp, whatever your camp may be. Like, little children, I'm writing you this so that you may not sin. And so if you came in with an understanding like, God's grace is so good that I can do whatever I want, let me tell you, number one, stop talking like that. Nobody likes it. But number two, it's just not true. There's a life that we have been redeemed into that declares that we should be different. We should be more. It should look other than it did before. And John just kind of starts. He's like, I'm I'm writing you these things, the ones that you just heard, the things that you're about to hear, and the section after, uh, so that you may not sin. Again, very, very simple, direct. But he says, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin, but, but, not letting you off, but he's about to give us some, some really some nice, deep, mysterious theological ideas. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So again, he's saying, I'm writing these things, so these things so that you won't sin. But if you do, like we read last week, if you say that you don't have sin, you're a liar. And now he's saying, but if you do, I want you to understand. Uh, we have this, this parakletos. 
this advocate. The Greek word is parakletos, which uh, we've seen it appear a couple of times. John uses it in his Gospel of John to actually describe the nature of the Holy Spirit, but now he's using it to describe the very nature of Jesus. And, and it's translated most of the time in modern English translations as, as advocate, but what he's actually saying is you have someone who's called to walk beside you. He said, I'm writing you things so that you won't sin, but if you do, understand, understand that Jesus has been set aside before the foundations of time to walk beside you. I think most of us, we have unhealthy views on sin. Number one, we either think, I've been saved by grace, so whatever I do is okay. That's unhealthy. Or we feel like um, God has paid a huge price for me, and when I screw up, he is so angry, so upset, and he wants to smite me. The pendulum swings to both of those extremes, but neither are correct. Like, yes, sin is bad, that's truth. Yes, grace is good, that's true. The truth of how we live our lives, how we respond is somewhere in the middle. We should strive not to sin day by day, make an effort not to sin, not to let it come in. But when it does, we understand that Jesus was dressed in grace and he was called to walk alongside us. Again, the whole idea that when we were called, when we were redeemed, Jesus had full disclosure as to what kind of people we were. Again, not liberty, not license to go out and sin. Do not hear what I am not saying. It's not what it's saying. But what we do need to hear is like the truth of who Jesus is. Like he's bigger. He's more. And it says this parakletos, this this advocate, this one who was called to walk alongside of us, this one who was called to make an appeal for us, he's there. He's there. So while my sin must disgust me, Jesus must redeem me. While my sin must disgust me, Jesus must redeem me. So he said, but if any of you do, understand that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. A couple other things about this, uh, this particular text. It's letting us know some other deep theological truths. Um, just to reread it again. Uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Number one, it lets us know who our sins are against. Because that advocate, that one who walks beside us, that, that parakletos that is interceding on our behalf, he's interceding to God the Father. And it lets us know that my sins don't just affect other people, but ultimately my sins, my sins are against the God of all, the creator of all, the author of all life, including mine. That's who I sin against. And that's who Jesus is advocating for me too. Like Psalm 51, we see David like in his, in his moment of realization of the depths of his sin. Um, and he starts this, this beautiful mode of repentance, uh, but there's really something very interesting in what he says. He says, my sins are against you and you alone, speaking directly to God. Now granted, what David did, yes, uh, there was Bathsheba, there was Bathsheba's husband whom he had killed, um, and his sin affected a lot of people. But when David is going to repent, confess, he's saying, God, my sin was against you and you alone. Because ultimately, we need to understand that the direction of my sin, my disobedience, my lack of obedience, whether it's a sin of omission or commission, like it's directed at God himself. It's directed at God himself. And so that should bring some weight to it. But also... Um, In the midst of that, it should be a reminder that the action, the love, the display of Jesus is to stand between us and God's wrath. Because I'll be honest, and maybe you don't like to hear it, but your sin, my sin, it does deserve wrath. 
like it does, by comparison to a holy, 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 trihagian nature God, like my sin deserves wrath by comparison, like God is that good and my sin is that egregious, like my sin deserves wrath, but this parakletos, this advocate, this one who is called to walk beside and intercede, he stands between us in that. So my sin's against God, the Father, but Jesus, but Jesus. So he continues and throws out a big word that only appears in in John's writings, and we'll talk about that. He says, he is, speaking of Jesus, the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so talking about first, he is that advocate or he is that, uh, that intercessor, that one who is called to walk beside of us in the event of sin. And this is speaking to believers, by the way, those who have already been redeemed by grace through faith. Um, he now says he is the propitiation. And so there's been labor over this particular word over the Greek word, because some people would apply it to, um, to pagan practices in which propitiation was just a price that was laid upon the altar, so it was just the cost, and other people believe that, uh, that it was more. You know, other people are going to read this, and they're going to believe that, it's, um, that Jesus is basically kind of making perpetual apologies for us kind of a thing. But again, the truth kind of lies somewhere in the middle in which Jesus was the price for my sin, completely, utterly, a price that I could not pay even in the event that I just sinned once. And let's be honest, I did not. He is that price for my sin, but he's also the one whose righteousness is viewed instead of my own. Like this is propitiation. This is substitutionary atonement. Uh, Yes, he put himself in my place, died in my place, and he paid my price. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is the advocate that we have. This is the one that has been called to walk alongside of us in the moments of our victory, in the moments of our weakness, in the moments of all, from beginning to end. This this is Jesus. And as a result of him, his workings, his duns, not my dues, I can be made right with God. And that is nuts. The first simplicity that we have, and and we're going to point out three simple truths in this, and I'm just calling them simplicities. The first is this. Jesus walks beside us, and he dies in our place. Jesus walks beside us, and he dies in our place. And we need to hang on that every single day. Like, we need to hang on that when we think that God is angry at me, and he wants to smite me out of existence. Jesus walks beside me. We need to hang on that when we think that my sin is so egregious that God can't possibly love me. Jesus died for that sin. We need to hang on that even when we think that we're, we're, we're good enough and we're okay enough. And then we need to remember, no, we weren't. We were bad enough that Jesus had to die. He came, died in my place, died in your place, died in the our place. He walks beside us and he died in our place. Continuing on. In verse 3, we get another indicator. He's shifting phrasing, and he's saying, by this, instead of if-then statements, one of those will appear. But in verse 3, he says, and by this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Here's when the rich simplicity really starts. This doesn't have to get deep. It doesn't have to get deeply explained. We don't have to look to the root of Greek and even the implications of ancient Hebrew as they were informing ancient Greek. No, it's just this. By this, we know. By this, uh, we know if we know him, if we keep his commandments. Let me make it even simpler. My obedience reveals whether or not I know God. 
my obedience reveals whether or not I know God. And man, obedience is not a word we like either. We send our dogs to school to teach them how to be obedient. And even when they come back, they're not. They still pee in the floor, and we still want to rub their noses in it because that's the way to train a dog how not to pee in the floor. Read it in a book somewhere. Obedience is not a popular word. We don't like that. But the beauty of this is if we're submitting to a God who knows all, loves all, thinks through every possible scenario, then our obedience can be squarely, rightly, and justly placed in him. And it's also revelatory of whether or not I'm trusting him with the course of my life. My obedience displays or reveals whether or not I actually know him. And this know idea in the New Testament, like this is this, this deep, thick uh, Greek idea of like relational exchange of life information. Relational exchange of life information. That's what it means to know God. Like it doesn't mean to know stories. It doesn't mean to be able to, to recite verbatim exactly how things occur. No, no, no. It means that I know God, to be honest, the same way in which I know my wife. And hopefully better. Like an intimate relational exchange. And it says, my obedience reveals whether or not that is there. My obedience. And let me take it from my table to yours. Your obedience reveals whether or not you know God. We don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to think that anyone else has the control or the reins over my life. But the reality is, whether you like it or not, someone's always going to have the control over your life. Whether it's the pattern of this world or whether it's the one who made it. And we have to yield and choose. One has our best interest at heart. The other wants us destroyed. We choose. My obedience reveals whether or not I know God. And that's our, our simple truth, number two. Obedience is an indicator. Obedience is an indicator. Or the lack thereof. I'm not trying to elicit guilt today. Like, that's not my job. And I don't think that was John's goal either in the book of 1 John either. Again, I think he was speaking truth to shore up and to, to bolster people's faith. Um, but I want us to understand, like, our obedience has a place. And it's, it's linked to God's commandments. And you're asking, well, what does that mean? What, is, what are those commandments? We'll get to that in just a bit. But simplicity, too, is obedience is an indicator. Verse 4 Continuing on this idea, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, well, he's a liar, <laughs> and the truth is not in him. I love that John just throws out words. Like, he just tosses them out there, words that we're afraid to use. You know, liar, like I referenced the Princess Bride last week, and I'll be honest, there was a spiritual mentor of mine that was sitting in the, in the crowd last week, and, and he, I expected, you know, I was a little bit nervous about teaching in front of him, and he was here, and then all of a sudden, like, my pinball brain uh, started quoting Princess Bride, and I'm like, oh my gosh. He's going to think I'm an idiot. But that's what I think when I read the word liar. I, you know, I think of Humperdinck and all of those things. But I'm not going to imitate that this week. We're just going to let it go. But I will say watch The Princess Bride with your kids. It's a great movie. Maybe once they're seven or above. Because um, those are R-U-S's. They're scary. Um, rodents of unusual size, by the way. But either way, he's saying, so if we say that we know him, but we don't keep his commandments, then we're just lying. Because again, my obedience, my ability, my desire, my drive to do the things that he's asked me to do reveals whether or not I know him. And so if I'm walking around saying, yeah, 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 I know him, I know the stories about him, I know what he did, I know all about him, but I'm, 
I'm not real big on obedience, then we don't know him. We don't know him. Simple truth. Man, I, I love my mom. I hate her for this story. I don't hate my mom. Don't, 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 read, don't hear what I just accidentally said. Um, like my mom would pull this thing when, I, when we were growing up, and, and I remember I got a Nintendo Entertainment System. It's high, you know, really, really good. Put the cartridge in, you push it down. Sometimes it would work, sometimes it didn't. If it didn't work, you, you blew on the cartridge or you took a dollar bill, cleaned it off. But either way, I became addicted to video games pretty early. It was their fault. They gave it to me. Um, and so I remember she would, I'd be playing Nintendo, all four buttons, and uh, five if you count the directional, and one of those was start and select. So two of those were start and select. They really didn't do anything. But either way, she would walk down the hall, and I would hear her footsteps going past our china cabinet because it would shake, and uh, it was just our house, and she would open the door, and she was like, hey, clean your room. And I'd be like, okay. I'd just do that, go back to it. She'd close the door, walk away, and I'd just keep playing. And then a little while later, I would... I would hear the china cabinet, and I'd hear her open the door, and she'd like, uh, Matthew, clean your room. My voice hadn't changed yet, so it's like, okay, so I'd do that. <laughs> and then she'd walk away, and then she'd come back again, and she'd open the door, and my room was still a disaster. I hadn't shoved everything under the bed yet. Um, and she would drop the mom hammer. If you love me, you would clean your room. Oh, she was exactly right. If I loved her, I would clean my room because she told me to. The reason my obedience is an indicator as to whether or not I know God is because my obedience directly reveals whether or not I love the person asking me to do it. It's the same for you. Because if we love him and he asks us to jump, we'll jump. If he loves us and he asks us to leave and we love him back, we'll leave. If he loves me and I truly love him the way he's called me, redeemed me to love him, and he tells me to abandon everything and pursue him. At some level, I don't have a choice. My obedience will always reveal who I know and ultimately who I love. My lack thereof is probably even more revealing. And again, guilt's not what we're after today. Assurance is what we're after. Faith is what we're after. Growth is what we're after. But sometimes in order to have those things, we need to hear that if we're not obeying God, then maybe we don't know him as well as we think we do. Read reading verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, does not keep his commandments as a liar. The truth is not in him. Verse 5, reasserting the same idea. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is per perfected, completed. Interesting thing about that perfected or completed word, depending on your translation, it's the exact same word that Jesus uttered on the cross right before he exhaled, exhaled his last breath and said, it is finished. It's finished. It gives us this idea that the goal of all of this, hopefully the end result of all of this, the grace-driven, mercy-laden, love-instructed goal of all of this in our completeness and in our perfection is going to be obedience to God. That's the goal. That's the goal. Just to obey God. Because, by the way, God's going to tell me what to avoid. God's going to tell me what to pursue. 
God's going to tell me what to let go of. God's going to tell me what to take hold of. The simplicity of obedience. As a 22-year-old, I rebelled. As a 44-year-old, I yearned for it. I want an all-knowing God to tell me exactly what to do so that I can just say yes. So that I don't have to battle and wonder if it's okay. Can I tell you that I do it right? Every day I can't, but it's what I want. Just the simplicity of someone who knows better and loves me more to tell me what to do. Obedience. Verse 5b, another by this statement. He says, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Our simple truth, number three. If I live in and through Jesus, my life should look like his. If I live in and through Jesus, my life should look like his. And I know. We can chase a rabbit here, and we can be like, well, what does that mean? Do I need to dress like he did? Do I need to sleep? No, no, no. Let's not be ridiculous. Let's think about it in the terms of love the way he loved, forgave the way he loved. I mean, forgave the way he forgave, pursued the way he pursued, avoided the things that he avoided, uh, gave grace to those who needed grace, gave honor to God at every turn. The list is long, and it's displayed in the life of Jesus. But it's basically saying, if my life is bound up in him, and if his life is bound up in mine, then the two lives should start to look very similar. One patterned after the other, and I'll give it away. It's not his life patterned after mine. It's mine patterned after his. Super simple. Like if I'm in him, and he's in me, one of us should start to look like the other. Again, like maybe as a 22-year-old, I've been like, I don't, I don't want that life. I want salvation, but I don't want that life. But as a 44-year-old, I'm like, I'm good with it. I'm okay with it. Matter of fact, I, I want it. What do we do with it? I think in light of these three simple truths, the first is he walks beside me. He's that parakletos, and he died in our place. I think the first thing is just, and this sounds so modern in self-help. I don't intend it to. I think it's, it's rooted in biblical truth. Be grateful and thank him frequently. Be grateful and thank him frequently. If there's a day that goes by that I see my sin, and I'm not grateful that I've been forgiven of my sin, then the reality is I probably don't see my sin, and I'm not looking at Jesus. There's no way that I can simultaneously look at the egregious acts that I've committed and then simultaneously see the grace of God and not say, thank you for forgiveness. So maybe it starts with just before you lay down, before you get up, just, God, thank you for forgiving me for my sins. And thank you that even in the midst of my life now, you walk beside me. Like, be grateful, be thankful, say it out, him, say it out loud to him as often as we can. And again, he had full disclosure at the time of our redemption. He knew what we had struggled with in the past. He had uh, full ability to look forward and see the things that we were going to struggle with in the future. And he died for us while we were still yet trespassers, while we were still trapped in our iniquity. 
knowing that iniquity would rear its ugly head for the rest of our imperfect lives. And He still redeemed us. So that should grow something in me, and it's called gratitude to where I'm just thankful on a daily basis. And I tell Him, God, thank you for forgiving me for my sins. Thank you for walking beside me now. Thank you for advocating on my behalf to God every single day. Thank you. It also forces us just to be honest. Again, like last week, one of those points was, look, we, we just need to be honest with our sin. We need to admit that it's there. We need to admit that it's there, admit that it's there to someone else, uh, pursue ways so that we may not sin. But be grateful for God that Jesus forgave us. Simple truth number two is my obedience is proof that I know him. My obedience is proof that I know him. And that kind of begs the question, well, what am I obeying? I think if we wanted to uh, if we wanted to simple answer this and we wanted to, man, to make it far, you know, just too easy, we would throw out the Sunday school answer. Well, I need to start with the Ten Commandments. That, you know, that's okay. Nothing wrong with those. Those are still good. Jesus didn't contradict those. But my encouragement would be this. Um, the beauty of where we are in this time, in this place in history, is we get to start with Jesus. We get to start with Jesus. Like, he came at the right time as far as language, as far as roads, as far as currency, as far as uh, the way information was spread at the exact right time. It's like somebody knew exactly what they were doing by sending their son into that place in history. As a matter of fact, he did. And as a result, we get to live 2,000 years some odd past that to where when we start our journey to understand what obedience looks like, we actually get to start with Jesus. This Christ who wrapped it up neatly in a bow to a degree for us so that we could know God, be known by God, make God known. If we want to know what it means to obey Jesus, yes, the Old Testament is great. We need to be aware of it. We need to understand what brought us to this point here. But at the same time, we have the beauty that we get to start with Jesus. Start with his life. Start with his words. Start with his reaction. Start with his death. Start with his resurrection. Look to Christ to understand what it means to obey Christ. Look at the words that he said. Look at the way that he spoke about the law. Look at the way that he spoke about obedience. Look at the way that he called people unto himself and what he released them to do. When he talked to those disciples the very first time, all he said was, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And from that time until the end, when he said, now, therefore, go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. All that I have commanded you was on display in the life of the words and the actions of Jesus, we get to start there. And if we want to know what it means to obey Christ, to do the things that he's asking us to do, the first thing that we need to do is get to know Christ. We have it written down. We have it on pages with words written on a sixth grade reading level. Fourth grade in some translations with beautiful, whimsical language that sometimes I don't like. I like stoic multisyllabic words like propitiation. But either way, we can start with Christ. God is going to reveal his revealed will through his word, through his spirit, through his people. We start with his word. We trust his spirit to inform us. We trust his people to confirm it. And then we go back to scripture to make sure they're all saying the same thing. Start with Jesus. If you haven't committed to reading the Bible for understanding, just, man, start in Mark or Luke or Matthew or John if you're feeling a little feisty. Just start. 
And before you do, just maybe stop and say, God, teach me who this Jesus is. Maybe you know him for like a salvific sense or like you've, you've, you've confessed him as Lord. You don't even know what that is yet. But you've chosen to abandon your sin and chosen him instead. And, and you're trusting that he's going to make you right with God in the very loosest sense of the word. But you still haven't committed to know him. If you want to know what he's asking you to do, you might want to listen to the words that he said first. And then second, it may just involve right after you say thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you've granted to me. Thank you for walking alongside of me every single day. Thank you for being that, that advocate on my behalf. Maybe right after that, you say, tell me what you want me to do. God, just tell me what you want me to do. And when he does, just do it. My obedience is proof that I know him. Seek God daily. Look for his revealed will through his word, through his spirit, through his people. And then go back to scripture to confirm it. And then when he says do, just let me, let me just take the guesswork out of it. God's not going to ask you to do something that's no good. And maybe where you're sitting, you're like, I don't believe that. I'm glad you're sitting there. Try it and find out. Simple truth number three. If my life is in him and through him, then my life should look like his. I already told you, go to scripture. Read about the life, the words, the directives of Jesus, the commandments. We're going to call them that. What he calls sin, what he doesn't call sin. Read all those things. And then in response to that, if my life should look like his, assess and apply frequently. Assess and apply frequently. And what I mean by that is just look at Jesus' life and ask, does my life look like that? In all the ways that are possible, does my wife look, does my, not my wife, sorry, she is, she's the picture of Jesus. Um, she's not here today, so make sure you tell her I told her that. Um, does my life look like Jesus' life? And, I, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, and this is crazy, and maybe, maybe you, you need it unpacked. Everything Jesus did other than dying for the sins of all mankind, he said we can do. That's nuts. Everything Jesus did other than dying for the sins of all mankind, he said we can do. As a matter of fact, he said you will do greater things <laughs> than I have when the helper, the Holy Spirit, comes to reside in you. You'll do greater things. It's better that I leave. Those were his words, not mine. That's nuts. That's nuts. But my life should look like Jesus's. And so hold the two up together. Like this is mental exercise. Like you take your life, you take his life, and you, you put them together and see what sticks out that's not congruent. Where does my life not look like his? And then those areas in, my, in which my life doesn't look like his because mine should be adopting to the pattern of his, not the other way around, maybe it means the things in my life that don't look like his I get rid of. I tell them farewell. Confession, repentance, agreeing with God about direction, agreeing with God about sin, and just saying goodbye. And man, that's hard. I'll just go ahead and tell you. To trim excess is difficult. But sometimes the simple act of following Jesus is difficult. And that's okay. Life asks us to do hard things all the time. God's going to ask us to do hard things too. And it's okay. Okay. 
And all of this is in an effort to, to follow and bring glory to Jesus. To follow and bring glory to Jesus. kind of think a question that's not on there is, and maybe we'll ask it in community groups this week, we haven't gotten that far yet, where do I struggle most to be obedient? Maybe just that simple question, maybe that's a great place to start. Where do I struggle most to be obedient? Maybe that's an amazing starting place. A great place just to confess and ask God to take ownership and then just grow something out of that. Let's see what he does with it. God, we love you. Thank you for simple truth. God, thank you for mystery. God, thank you that you're worth obeying. And I, and I know, I know that there are people that are sitting here right now that don't like that, that phrase. I get it. I've been there. Um, but God, I pray that you would bring us to a place to where our faith and our obedience is simple. Our faith and our obedience is simple. Built on the complex truth of who you are, the beautiful revealed nature of who you are, but our faith and obedience, they're just simple. You ask and we do. Father, I thank you for the beauty that rests in the fact that you just tell us that, um, that someone who loves you, that someone who knows you, that's relationally tied to you, Father, we, we do what you ask. Father, I pray that we'd be a people that are marked by your wisdom and your direction. How can we go wrong by doing the things that an all-knowing, all-loving God asks of us? I pray that our faith would respond in kind. God, for those who are sitting here struggling with the idea as to whether or not you're real, whether or not you're worthy of obeying, Father, I pray that you would speak louder. I pray that you would confirm to them the nature of who you are and what you desire um, and the simplicity of your truth that rests in the gospel. The simplicity that, that Jesus walks beside us and he also died in our place. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you that it's evident through Jesus. And Father, I pray that it be evident in the way that we live. It's in your name we pray. Amen.